Father of grace, we just thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you that we can gather this evening to study your word, and we pray that you would help us to know you and understand you more because of this study. We pray that we would glory in Christ's resurrection, and that you would give us wisdom as we deal with the difficult topic of the phrase, he descended into hell, and we ask all these things in Christ's name, amen. So as we start, um, I want us to recite the creed again. We did this the very first week together. We recited the creed. Uh, as the people of God, which has been a practice within the churches uh, since pretty much shortly after the creed came about, is one of the purposes of the creed. So we'll go ahead and start off, and we'll just read it all together, if you will. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Leave that up for just a couple more moments, Stephen. Is there anything in there that made anyone uncomfortable? Be honest. The Holy Catholic Church, okay. We'll, we'll address that later. That's typically Protestants do have issue with that because of our context. When we think of the Catholic Church, we think of the Roman Catholic Church. Right, but the context there is, is the universal church, right? That there is a universal body of believers redeemed by Christ, in which we will have that discussion. Anything else? He descended into hell. All right, thank you. That's a difficult topic, right? Did Jesus go to hell for three days? Right? So typically, when people read and recite the confession together, when they hit that phrase, they seem a little uncomfortable. Like sometimes you can kind of tell that maybe the, the decibel volume in the room reduced a little bit and they're thinking to themselves, should I actually say this statement, right? So you can take it down, Stephen. I appreciate that. Um, so I'm going to spend some time talking about he descended into hell and then we'll talk about on the third day he rose again from the dead. So as I, I want to address kind of three things uh, in regards to this phrase. So first I want to talk about the background and history of the creed again. Brian talked about it uh, when we had the first study on the Apostles' Creed, but I think it's important, especially for this phrase, that we look at the history of its being inserted into the creed. When did it come in, and what did it mean when it was first inserted? That is very important. What did the author intend it to mean? Just like when we look at Scripture, we ask that same question. So we look at the history tonight, the meaning and context of it, and then whether we can affirm it or not, because I do want to address that, because again... I think that it is kind of a thorny phrase that's within the Apostles' Creed. So for the background in history, when was it added? So Philip Schaeff, he's a well-known church historian. Uh, if you ever want to buy a book series that can take up an entire bookshelf, you can buy his church history volumes on the early church. Um, but he's well-documented the early church. And so he, his, his, from studying primary evidence, he shows that the Apostles' Creed, the earliest primary evidence we have is about A.D. 200. Right, as Brian discussed in, in his first study of the Apostles' Creed, when he kicked off this study, uh, much of it is attributed to apostolic teaching, possibly even from the apostles. So even though A.D. 200 is the earliest we have, there is kind of that, that, that church rumor that has kind of filtered through the ages that the apostles actually wrote it, right? But A.D. 200 is the earliest we have, and it didn't take its final form until A.D. 750, so actually in 750 is when the Apostles' Creed it got closer to the form that we just read up there, right? So the oldest creeds were found in Africa, Rome, and the rest were in, in the rest of Italy. And descended to the he into hell, this exact phrase, is not found in any of those earlier creeds, right? So the earliest creeds, like I said, in Africa, Rome, and the rest of Italy, it's not in any of those creeds. The only place, um, or when it appears is from a gentleman named Rufinius in AD 390. So 190 years later, this phrase is inserted into the Apostles' Creed. He actually has two different versions of the Creed, Rufinius. 
So he has two different versions. One has this phrase, one does not. And really, it's the only place where it's found until A.D. 650. So it's another couple hundred years until we actually see it in any other documents. So we see it in Rufinius, well after the earliest sources. Then we don't see it for a couple hundred more years when we actually see this phrase in the Apostles' Creed. So what's the meaning of it, right? What is the meaning of this statement if we are going to be professing it? So he, I believe, and what most biblical scholars or I'm, church history scholars believe is that it does not mean descended to the hell in the sense that Jesus went to hell for three days. And we're going to go through this uh, looking at the context of this phrase. So instead, he took it to mean that Christ was buried or descended to the grave. So basically that Christ died and went to the grave, that, that Christ truly died. And so what we need to look at is, is the Greek word here. This is kind of where the discussion starts at. It's the Greek form of Hades, which can mean hell, but also means grave, typically. So there's another word, Gehenna, which in the New Testament and in Greek, typically is what we are going to see when we see the translation into hell, the eternal place of torment, of fire, right? So that is the typical connotation that we have of hell would be the Greek word Gehenna. But when Rufinius is writing this, or wherever he gets his source for this, he does use the phrase Hades, which again can be translated into grave, or Jesus died. And so Bill Mounts, a Greek scholar, he does a good job contrasting the biblical use of hell and Hades. He does a good job showing that Hades can simply mean the place of the dead, which is what I'm arguing tonight, is what Rufinius meant. Whereas Gehenna means the place of eternal punishment, which is not the intended meaning of what we're stating today. And so Bill Mounts goes on to say that later Christian reflection fleshes out these ideas and generally combines the idea of Gehenna and Hades into that of hell, which is why we have that in our English version, because we don't really see that distinction in, as much in English, and so typically they become translated as hell, but then we lose a little bit of that meaning. So it's similar to the Old Testament idea that David speaks about when he talks about going to Sheol, right? This idea of the place of the dead. It's not that David believed he was going to hell. David clearly had a future hope of being reunited with God. He clearly did not see himself as going into hell. And so I would argue, again, it's kind of like this idea of Sheol. So in addition to this, Rufinus's version that has descended into hell, like I said, there was two versions, but the one that has descended into hell, it actually leaves out the phrase dead from the previous phrase, which JT went over last week, which was crucified, dead, and buried, or crucified, died, and was buried. It actually doesn't have dead in that phrase. So it's as if he's inserting descended into hell to basically give you that same context of Jesus died is exactly what I'm arguing is what Rufinius intended, and which is what most, again, church historians believe. And so that is exactly why he would have left it out, and that you don't see them both in the creed at the same time. And so other creeds have descended in hell, but they don't have buried. So again, the creeds, the earlier creeds that began inserting descended into hell, they either left out buried or they left out dead. So they left out one of those phrases, and this is what was inserted in to kind of make up for that, in a sense. So what I would argue is that the example that we have here is that in translation into English, we've kind of lost the message, in a sense. And this can happen in translation at times. And so I would prefer a translation that we would read in here that says, descended to the dead, which some creeds actually do have that. I actually put this one up here intentionally so that we could have this discussion, right? And Al Mohler in his book, he uses this same, same uh, creed, but he argues the same thing, that basically Jesus died, that Jesus went to the grave. It means nothing more than that. So any questions so far? Harvey. Yep, First, First Peter 3, yep, and I'm going to look at just a couple texts, just briefly, um, on that, and, and we'll address that. Good point, Harvey, absolutely. That, that is typically probably the strongest argument made, would be that, that text right there. So, 
Some versions do. Some do say descended of the dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it creates confusion, honestly, and, and we'll kind of go through that as I talk about some of the arguments for descended to hell. Yeah, that's a great, great question. So the third thing I want to address is can we affirm it then? Can we affirm this statement? Because, again, there's been confusion and disagreement over the meaning of the section of the Apostles' Creed, really ever since shortly after it was inserted into the Creed. There's been a lot of confusion on it. Uh, there's been disagreement throughout the church. And so in attempts to defend the Apostles' Creed, many have come to argue for a literal, literal descent into hell. And so a lot of people trying to kind of accommodate the Apostles' Creed, in a sense, try to find proof texts in order to defend it. Uh, which, again, it, it, we, we love the Apostles' Creed, right? It, I think it's a great statement of our faith. But only in so much as it is articulating Scripture. Only in so much as it's biblical, right? The Apostles' Creed is not inspired. We're not saying that it is inspired. So only in so much as it articulates Scripture are we going to affirm it. So I want to talk about some of those passages, one of them which Harvey just mentioned, that address that idea that Jesus actually descended into hell, that tried to defend that, that stance. So Acts 2.27, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. So again, this idea of you will not abandon my soul to Hades, and it's actually a quotation of Psalm 16.10, which again goes back to David, where David is talking about not being abandoned to Sheol. So again, as I argued originally about the context, Hades and Sheol, I believe, are the same place. You will not abandon me to the place of the dead. And so God will not abandon Jesus unto death. That is what is being stated there in Acts. Is that Jesus will not be abandoned unto death, which is, as we'll see, he will rise again, right? Death could not hold him. And so I believe that is the context of that text. There's some other texts in Romans and in Ephesians. Um, again, I think they're, they're speaking of different things. In Ephesians, it's talking about him descending and contrasting that with him ascending, in Ephesians 4, I believe what's happening there is it's actually talking about the incarnation, that he descended unto earth, because the opposite of him ascending into heaven was him descending unto earth. Um, and so again, I believe that that's not a, a, a sufficient enough argument for us to affirm that Jesus went to hell. Now, 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 20, this is what Harvey cited. This, I believe, would be the strongest text to argue that Jesus actually went to hell. And so I'll, I'll read the text, starting in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So, so far I think we'd all be on the same page here, but this is where it gets difficult in this text. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they, did not, they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were being brought safely through water. So this is a very difficult passage. You can pull up a commentary on 1 Peter. You can pull up many commentaries, and you typically find about six different arguments. Two of those, which are probably the strongest, um, but typically about six arguments from even the conservative commentators. It's a very difficult passage. The two primary arguments is that the Spirit of Christ preached in Noah's day. So it's actually talking past tense that the Spirit of Christ preached in Noah's day to a wicked generation before the flood. The other argument is that Jesus did go into hell to preach victory over the demonic realm. Okay? So I think that this passage is a very difficult passage to interpret, as everyone would acknowledge that is attempting to handle it. I don't think that it gives us sufficient clarity for us to affirm that Jesus went to hell for three days. That, that's what I would argue, is that this would be the only passage you could argue from. It's a very difficult passage to argue that, and I still don't think it's sufficient for us to make the case that he descended into hell for three days. And so if we struggle with this statement in the creed, I think we're in good company. So I'm going to cite a couple of examples of respected theologians and kind of what they've said about it. So Herman Bavinck, a 19th century Dutch Reformed theologian, says this, No other places in Scripture speak of Christ's burial or of his, state, or his stay in the state of death. 
Later, when in the Christian church the confession arose of Christ's descent into hell, people indeed looked for proof texts in Scripture and appealed to numerous places. So again, he's arguing that what happened was people started find, trying to find proof texts to defend the creed rather than trying to see is this biblical or not. And so this is kind of where these statements began to come in as far as the church saying that he descended into hell. Along the same lines, Louis Burkhoff, another Reformed theologian, said, It should be borne in mind that these words are not found in Scripture and are not based on such direct statements of the Bible as the rest of the articles of the Creed. So what he's going after is the fact that basically every article in the Creed is found in Scripture, that you can find very clear scriptural proof for it. This one, you're having to find a difficult passage to affirm something um, that may or may not be true, that may not be the best interpretation of that passage. Wayne Grudem says, unlike every other phrase in the creed, it represents not some major doctrine on which all Christians agree, right? So he's saying this isn't like a major doctrine. As we've talked about before, that, that theological triage of like tier one doctrines, that if you don't believe that, you're not a Christian, this isn't one of those. Whereas most of these doctrines in this creed that we recited are tier one issues, absolutely. And so he's saying that instead, this represents a doctrine that most Christians can't really come to a consensus on, but rather a statement about which most Christians seem to disagree. And then he goes on to say it's at best confusing and in most cases, cases misleading for modern Christians. And then Wayne Grudem says, my own judgment is that there would be all gain and no loss if we dropped it from the creed once and for all. So he's actually arguing for just taking it out altogether. Mm-hmm. Wayne Grudem, John Piper goes along the same lines, saying that we should omit it from the creed. R.C. Sproul says that people are making a lot of assumptions when they consider that this is a reference to hell and that Jesus went there between his death and resurrection. Which I, I agree with R.C. Sproul there. What he's saying is that there's, there's some assumptions that we have to make to be able to say that Jesus went to hell for three days. And I don't think that necessarily we have sufficient biblical evidence for us to make that, those assumptions. And so I would agree with all of them um, and, and saying those things. I don't necessarily believe that we have to take it out or admit it, um, but I think that we need to understand it rightly. I think that's what's important here, is that we understand it rightly and that we understand it as the way that I believe Rufinius even intended it to mean when he wrote it was that Jesus died. Jesus died, went into the grave, right? He died for our sins. And that part of the glorious doctrine we can affirm, we can all believe in, and we can all praise God that he did die for our sins on the cross. Any questions on that? Go ahead. I don't think there's sufficient text to give us. Otherwise, it would be an even easier argument to take, you know, to be able to just tear down the argument making for him descending into hell. Go ahead, Steve. Yes, today you'll be, you're right, you're right. I apologize. You're correct. Yeah, but I'm, as far as being able to just, that would be your primary defense against this argument. Um, but I do, I do believe there is an argument here. Yes, you're correct. I do believe there is an argument here to be able to say that he descended into hell. I just don't think it's a helpful argument. And I do believe that there are better defenses against it. Yeah. Now, if there have been, there's no Jesus or too many people. Here's, here's my thoughts on it. Absolutely, his spirit moved to the presence of God. His body was, was uh, buried in the grave. And here's the argument I put. The, the spirit and cleansing are the fallen angels, not humans. So Jesus preached to them his victory and their certain doom. Here, and here's the argument. The word went in verse 19 is the same word as in verse 20.
Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, depending on, what, depending on what he is doing in hell is very important. Is he preaching victory or is he suffering? Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's very dangerous. So we'll lead from that into he arose from the dead, right? The statement that all Christians can agree on, right? True Christians. There is definitely disagreement on bodily resurrection, spiritual resurrection, things like that, right? But as we understand it, as Christians who understand the Bible, we affirm a bodily resurrection of our Savior. And so a couple months ago, actually I was about to leave for church on a Wednesday night, much like tonight. And uh, I was about to walk out the door, I was about to grab my Bible, and we got a knock on the door. And so I kind of had my shades up a little bit, and so I could see three feet at the door, and I was pretty sure I knew what was about to happen. It was a little bit before Easter. And so I opened the door, and at first I'm thinking, I need to get to church. You know, it's Wednesday night, and I realized, you know, this is a great opportunity to be able to witness. And so they begin to invite me to celebrate Jesus' death. And so I asked them, it was actually a young girl, she's very, very small, and so she's like, would you like to come celebrate Jesus' death with us? And, and so I asked her, I said, why do you celebrate Jesus' death? And so she starts to explain that Jesus died for our sins, and I asked her why he needed to die for our sins, and she explained that we're all sinners, and that we all sinned in Adam, and does a great job telling me that. And then, so then I, I asked her, well, do you guys, so you're celebrating his death, do you also celebrate his resurrection? So at this point, the grandmother steps in and kind of pushes the young little girl back. And then it gets a little more serious, you know. She can tell that, like, I was playing innocent at first, but I knew a little more than I was putting on. And so then we start talking about the deity of Christ, his bodily resurrection, and all these things. And from there, it was very clear the differences that, that we had as she was rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord and his bodily resurrection. And so um, as we go into this, discussion, it just continues to go in circles. Uh, we end up, you know, just amicably realizing that, that we're going to disagree on this topic. I encourage them to read their Bibles, because what was interesting is they were pointing to Scripture, misinterpreting it, and arguing that their argument was from Scripture. And so I encourage them to read their Bibles and to see, is that really what Scripture is presenting to them? Um, and, and, and we left it at that. Right, but as Christians, how we view the resurrection is central to our belief. It is absolutely central, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Paul writes, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's all for nothing if Christ has not raised from the dead. And so, so far in our study, we've discussed what's often referred to as Christ's humiliation, that he humbled himself, that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he died and was crucified and was buried, but now we are at his exaltation, that he rose from the dead. And so we go from his humiliation to his exaltation, the glorious doctrine of Christ's resurrection. And the entire biblical narrative is awaiting this one that would come and overturn the curse. And so what I, I just briefly want to kind of go from Genesis to the Gospels, and then we're going to look at the book of Acts, and then a little bit of the epistles as we kind of look at the resurrection in the Bible. The entire scriptures 
are pointing to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the New Testament is pointing back to it continually. And I'm just going to show a small glimpse of how important it was to the New Testament authors and to the apostolic preaching. And so starting in Genesis, Adam is told in the garden not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For in that day, surely he will die. The, the Hebrew words for that are actually dying you will die. Because they don't have surely or very. Those aren't common words found in Hebrew. So they have repetition. So it's literally dying you will die. You will most definitely die if you eat of this. And what does Satan come and do? He says dying you will not die. Rejecting God's truth and his word. Satan comes and tempts them. We know the story. Man eats. Death enters the world. But promises made of the one who would come. The seed of man who would defeat Satan and overturn the curse. And so the first seed of man, we see Cain and Abel. It seems promising, but it ends in death. It ends in murder and death. Then we're left with genealogies, where the focus on the repetition is, and he died. And he died. And we just continue to hear that phrase, and he died. Pointing to the curse that has not been overturned, and that death is continuing among the seed of man. But in the midst of this, we have Enoch who walks with God and is taken up, already hinting at an escape from the pangs of death and a reunion with God. Then we have Noah, whose name literally means, out of the ground the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring relief. So even in his name, we see the expectation that one will come and bring relief for us. But then in Noah, we see another one who lets us down. We see his sin and ultimately his death. And so again, the seed of man has not proven that they can overturn the curse because we need one who is fully God and fully man. And so we could walk through the entire scripture narrative pointing to examples of this expectation, the expectation that, would, that one would come to overturn the curse. And this is exactly what Jesus comes to do. He brings life to a people under a death sentence. He overturns the punishment of death that we all face. So in the Gospels, we come to encounter this one that would overturn the curse and our death sentence. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 6, something greater than the temple is here. If you will, turn to, with me to John 2. We'll walk through some biblical texts. John 2, verse 18 through 22, if someone will read that for me when they get there. So when Jesus is speaking of the temple, what is everyone thinking? The literal temple. But what is he talking about? Himself. Right? And he's pointing to the fact that he'll be raised from the dead. And after he is raised from the dead, it changes everything for the disciples. Right? You get this band of disciples who are disillusioned and discouraged. They're hiding and in fear. But instead, after he rises from the dead, they remember what he said, and they believe the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So the resurrection changes everything for the disciples as it begins to make sense exactly what Jesus was pointing to as he was pointing himself to himself as the temple. And then we see in the book of Acts, as I said, this changes everything for the, for the disciples and it's central to their preaching, it's central to their message, and it's central to the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's turn to Acts 2. Acts 2, verse 22 through 24, if someone will read that. This is, this is Peter's first sermon at Pentecost. So if someone will read 22 through 24.
it, was, it would be impossible for him to be held by its power. Death could not hold Christ. And we see that this is central to Peter's gospel message as he's preaching this. Right? He tells them that they've killed Jesus, but they've done it according to God's plan. Right? We see God's sovereignty. This is according to exactly what God has planned. But yet they're still accountable. You crucified and killed him. Right? We see this, this dual reality of God's sovereignty, yet human responsibility. But then he starts showing us the reality that God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So again, he's pointing to the fact that death could not hold Christ, that he was the one that would overturn death. And then as we continue in Acts 20, 20, or sorry, 2, chapter 2, verse 29, someone wants to read 29 through 31. That's good, Chris. That's good, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. So he's pointing to David, right? The Davidic king, as, we're, as Brian's preaching through Samuel, right? We see that the Davidic king is pointing to, again, this seed that the promises are to this Davidic king that one would come. But, right, they love David, right? David is a type of Christ. He's pointing us forward to Christ. But he says in verse 29 that David, he died and he was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day, right? He's still among us. As great as David was, he's, he's dead. He wasn't the one to overturn the curse. But then in verse 30, he continues, says, being therefore a prophet, right? So David was a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. So again, David understood the promises that God had made to him that one would come. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, right? So even David was speaking of this resurrection reality, looking forward to it, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Again, this idea that death could not hold our Savior, that he was the one to overturn the curse. And then in Acts 3, verses 14 through 15, if someone wants to read that, Acts 3, verse 14 through 15, So you denied the holy and righteous one. He's doing this in the temple square. So if you can imagine this type of message in the temple square. Right, Brian's preaching through Jeremiah on Sunday nights, Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah is in the temple square with not a very favorable message to the Jewish people, to Israel, as he's preaching to them. And now here Peter is in the temple square saying, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you. And you killed, how does he describe him? The prince of life, the author of life, right? He's pointing to the deity of Christ, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, right? So he's, he's speaking to the fact that, that they actually witnessed this, right? That they are witnesses to these truths. And this changes everything for them. It, as I'm showing, it's central to their preaching. It's central to the gospel. We can't preach the gospel apart from preaching the resurrection of Christ. Because, again, as Paul will state... In 1 Corinthians 15, we have no hope and our faith is in vain if we're preaching a gospel with no resurrection. Yes?
Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. David knew a lot more than we assumed that he knew. And Peter's clearly pointing back to that and saying that David is pointing forward to these greater realities well beyond himself. Absolutely. And then in Acts 3, someone wants to read Acts 3 verses, I'm sorry, Acts 10, 39 through 40. Acts 10, 39 through 40. So now Peter's preaching to the Gentiles. So we saw his message preaching to the Jews, similar message to the Gentiles. Again, we are witnesses of these things that he did in the country of the Jews in Jerusalem, to, that they put him to death by hanging him on a tree, right? Which we know from Deuteronomy that anyone hung on a tree is cursed, right? So he was cursed for our sake, but God raised him on the third day. Right? We see that, that God raised him, that God was satisfied to raise him, to vindicate him as his son, that he rose from the dead and he made him to appear. Right? This truth that the action of the Father in rising Christ from, raising Christ from the dead. And then Paul picks up these similar themes in Acts 17. Yeah. Well, I think this is why we affirm a bodily, a bodily resurrection, that his spirit and his body were reunited and he's, he's in the glorified state, right? And, and so even his disciples at points don't recognize him in his glorified state, that he, he is, in a sense, he is the first of a new humanity also, and that he is our future hope that we would also be reunited with that humanity. And so I do believe that his body, right, that, that he, he literally died, right? But his spirit did go to be with God in heaven, as Steve pointed out. As far, as far as, so I make an argument that, that what, he had nowhere to go?
Yeah, they're helpful for us to be able to make an articulation of our faith and in some ways to kind of put up boundaries for us so that we stay within the biblical norms of Scripture and they're faithful only in so much as they're faithful to Scripture, which is why some creeds have been rejected or some creeds have been changed over the years. Um, but again, this is what you're bringing up or things that a lot of people do bring up against them, but I do think that they are helpful for us to be able to make an articulation of our faith. Go ahead, Steve. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And typically most creeds, speaking of what he's saying, most creeds have arisen because of some heresy in the church, typically. And so you'll see kind of changes in the creeds, like as the deity of Christ is being rejected, you'll see kind of that, that part of that creed is going to have expanded parts on that as they debated the Holy Spirit, right? The, the first debates were about Christ, his deity, his humanity, how do you make sense of this? Then they start dealing with the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit God? What's the role of the Holy Spirit? And so then you start seeing more creeds formed around those sorts of truth. But I think they're helpful for us to be able to stay in those norms um, because you can, you can filter out a lot of heresies through creeds. All right, well, we'll continue Acts 17, verse 2. This is now Paul. So we've been looking at Peter, what he's been preaching. Again, Peter's clearly preaching a message of the resurrection of Christ. There's actually many other messages I've skipped over, but I hope that I'm showing a clear argument that, that the gospel and our reality as Christians is inextricably tied to the resurrection of Christ. So Paul, in Acts 17, if someone will read verse 2. Verse 2 and 3, sorry. So, Paul, as was his custom... He reasons with them from the scriptures, and he's explaining and proving the necessity for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Again, the necessity that we would need one to come and to die for our sins on the cross. That would take God's wrath that we deserve. That would take the punishment that we deserved upon himself and to rise from the dead. These were necessary things, and so Paul is preaching this message to them, proving to them the necessity that we need one who would not only die for our sins, but who would rise from the dead. And so again, we see it consistent in Peter's preaching. We see it consistent in Paul's preaching, this necessity of this one that would come. Even in David's preaching, David is pointing forward to this day. So again, the entire biblical narrative is pointing forward to these realities that Christ would die for our sins and arise from the dead. And then we go to the epistles, where justification is linked to the resurrection. If we look at Romans 4, let's turn to Romans 4 together. Romans 4, verses 23 through 25, if someone will read that. So Christ was actually raised for our justification. Our justification is being linked to the resurrection. So God raised Christ from the dead. It was Christ's vindication. And it was God's declaration of his approval of Christ's work in redemption. And, it's, and, and our approval from God rests upon God's approval of Christ, which is evidenced in the, res, the resurrection. So our justification ultimately rests upon the resurrection of Christ. So again, the important doctrine of justification that we would be declared righteous, that we would receive the righteousness of Christ. This beautiful exchange that God has done, that he has declared us holy because of Christ's work, again, rests upon his resurrection. And then Romans 6, verses 3 through 5, if we can turn there together. Someone wants to read Romans 6, 3 through 5.
So he uses baptism as corresponding to our new realities as a Christian, right? That we've been united to Christ in a death like his, but it didn't end there, right? Because we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So not only is our regeneration, our justification tied to the death and resurrection of Christ, but so is our future hope, right? Our future glory is tied to the fact that Christ has raised from the dead, that he is bodily raised, that we have a future hope of being reunited with him and in some sense being like him, right? Not being God, but being restored into the image of God, the image that we were created originally with, right? That though we still bear, but we bear it in a fallen manner, right? A sin-stained manner. But our new reality is tied to the resurrection of Christ. That's what Paul is pointing us to. The last text I want to take us to is 1 Corinthians 15 which is probably the, the most drawn-out text on the resurrection, probably one of the best ones to turn to in defense of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, I'll begin in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. So of first importance, this is what I delivered to you. This is the message, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Again, Paul is pointing to this truth that Christ has died for our sins, and this is accordance to scriptures, right? Scriptures were pointing forward to this day. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. This sounds very similar to our creed that we're stating. And again, this is why I say the creeds are only faithful in as much as they are biblical. Which is if we look at the Apostles' Creed, it comes out of Scripture. And this is a great example of it. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So Paul's pointing to the historical fact of the resurrection, right? We haven't spoken of that. It's assumed. But Paul is pointing to the historical fact that, no, there are people who have seen this. There are over 500, right? He's pointing to specific people also saying, no, these people have seen Christ raised from the dead. And so when people deny the historical bodily resurrection of Christ, they're clearly denying Scripture, the clear message that Paul's giving us and that Peter has given us, that the Gospels record for us, the Bible is being denied when anyone denies the truth of the reality that Christ rose from the dead. But again, Paul is telling us this is a first importance. This is a first-tier issue. right? This is central to the Gospel message, that when we preach the Gospel, we must preach that Christ died for our sins and that he rose from the dead. And then he continues, I'm going to skip forward because, again, it's such a long passage on the resurrection. Verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our, your faith is in vain. Again, this idea that if Christ hasn't actually been raised, it's all in vain for us. As Christians, there's no point in us doing what we do as Christians, living a life of faithfulness unto God, repenting of our sins, believing in Christ. If he hasn't both died and raised from the dead, our faith is in vain. And then he continues in verse 15, we're even found to be misrepresenting God, right? That's a pretty, pretty sobering accusation because we testified about God that he raised Christ. Again, this is central to his message, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. So again, he kind of repeats this idea, and you are still in your sins. So if Christ hasn't been raised, we are still in our sins. We are still dead in our sins and our trespasses. We cannot be saved apart from the resurrection. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if, Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of, all, we of all people mo most to be pitied, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's pointing to Christ as the first fruits for all that have died. Right? He's linking our future glory, our future hope in Christ, our future with God, our union with God in heaven. He's linking that to Christ's resurrection, and he talks about Christ as the first fruits. Right? For many of you, you've, you've grown fruits or vegetables, and you know what the first fruits are, right? It's kind of that, that early harvest. There's a couple things there, and what they are is they're a preview of what's to come, right? You may only get a couple pieces of ripe fruit originally, not really enough to, to satisfy, but it kind of leaves you wanting more. But it's a preview of what's to come, and that's what Christ is. His resurrection is a preview of what is to come for all of us who are in Christ. It's a beautiful reality as we look to our own hope, our own future with him. And so the resurrection, again, is central to the biblical message, and it's central to every book of the Bible. The Old Testament is pointing forward to this day. The New Testament is looking back and looking forward to the future day. But this message is central to us. Our entire Christian existence is established through both his death and his resurrection. I fear that we often get too comfortable about the idea that Christ rose from the dead. We talk about it at Easter, right? We, we talk about it at times when it comes up in the text. But is it, a, is it a reality to us that's just central to our daily lives? Clearly it was for the apostles. I skipped over a lot of text in the book of Acts as far as preaching the message of the resurrection. But I think we also looked at tons of texts, right? Just walking through them together. And we could continue through the entire New Testament just looking at more and more examples of them preaching the message of the resurrection. It shouldn't just be a historical fact for us. We should revel in it. We should revel in the fact that we have a Savior who has conquered death, that has defeated the curse. And as we saw this evening, it was absolutely central to the early church and their understanding of Christ and the identity of the believer, and it should be central to our preaching. It should be central to our worship, and it should be central to our daily living. So let us, along with the Apostles' Creed, never get tired of affirming that on the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you indeed did send your Son who humbled himself to be born of the Virgin that he lived the perfect life that we could never live, and that he suffered, died, and was buried, Lord. But we thank you that you raised him from the dead, and that you conquered death, sin, and the grave forevermore for the Christian, Lord. And we just thank you for our future hope that we have because of Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection. And we ask that we would revel in it, Lord, that it would cause us to be in awe of you, and that it would cause us to preach that message just as we saw tonight as the apostles preached it so boldly, Lord, against opposition, that they preached the message of the resurrection. Let that be on our lips, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.